Hear the word of the Lord through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so must he live. I give this sort of direction in all the churches. Was anyone called after he had been circumcised? He should not try to undo his circumcision. Was anyone called who is circumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Instead, keeping God's commandments is what counts. Let each one remain in that situation in life in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not worry about it. I mean, if indeed you're able to be free, make the most of the opportunity For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. In the same way, the one who was called as a free person is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of people. In whatever situation someone was called, brothers and sisters, let him remain in it with God. This is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord, and I know what some of you were thinking about it. You were thinking, that is a strange word with which to begin a sermon about marriage. Just stick it out with God. Uh, well, maybe there's more to it than that, and, but I understand why you, would, why you would think that. 1 Corinthians 7 has the reputation of being the marriage, divorce, remarriage chapter of the Bible, and it does. It does contain some valuable insights those issues. But what if I told you that marriage, divorce, and remarriage is not really the point of this chapter? Uh, what if I told you that marriage, divorce, and remarriage are addressed in this chapter, but only as they relate to larger questions that uh, are plaguing the Corinthian minds? You see, the teaching in this chapter is really a response to some mistaken notions that the Corinthians have of what makes a person pleasing to the Lord. What makes you holy to the Lord? What makes you really spiritual in the sight of the Lord? Now listen, that shouldn't be too hard for you to grasp because any serious study of 1 Corinthians is going to expose that the Corinthians had some crazy ideas about what made one holy or spiritual or mature. Everything Paul writes in this letter is meant to address their misunderstanding about spirituality, maturity, and wisdom. Everything. And it looks like that somebody here in Corinth is arguing that abstaining from sex, even in marriage, Maybe even marriage itself puts one on a higher spiritual plane, a more mature spiritual plane, gets one uh, closer to God. Now, if my take on this is correct, and I admit that it's open to debate, there's a lot of debated stuff in this chapter. But if I'm anywhere close... It means that in this one church, 
You have a wide variety of attitudes and beliefs and practices concerning marriage and sex. And that shouldn't be hard to believe. Because I'm just willing to bet that among the hundreds of people who are here this morning, you've got some people who believe things about marriage and sex that are just weird. Now, you didn't laugh at that, but I'm laughing at it. Because I know you. Spencer told me. And I know the people I preach to, too. And I know myself. That's the problem. The Corinthians had views about marriage and sex that were all over the map. Just in the Corinthian church, there's a guy having an affair with his stepmother. Just in the Corinthian church, there are guys who are visiting the brothels and the prostitutes on a weekly basis. Just in the Corinthian church... There are people who manner, uh, practice all manner of sexual immorality and adultery and homosexual practice. Remember he says in chapter 6, and such were some of you. I mean, their beliefs are all over the map about this. There are even some people in the Corinthian church who are saying, you know what? I think you just ought to abstain altogether. Because that gets you really closer to God. You can be really pure if you do it uh, that way. What the Corinthian church is, is a hot mess. It's a mess. This is the marriage, divorce, and remarriage chapter of the New Testament. It does not mean that Paul is trying to lay down here a comprehensive theology of marriage. That's not what he's doing. What he is doing is trying to answer some specific questions that the Corinthians have about their marriages. Notice how the chapter begins. Verse 1. Now with regard to the issues you wrote about. Well, here's what's happening. Paul has received a delegation from the church in Corinth. People from Chloe's household, he calls them in chapter 1, and they have brought to Paul a report about how the church is doing. And their report is, it is a divided church. They're dividing about everything. But along with their report about this church, they bring a list of questions that they want Paul to answer. Wouldn't it be great to have an apostle on speed dial? Well, that's what they have. And they've brought him a list of questions, and you can see him responding to them beginning in chapter 7. He says, uh, now with regard to the issues you wrote about, they've written him a letter where they've asked questions about marriage, chapter 7, about meat offered to idols, chapters 8, 9, and 10, about worship, chapter 11, about the resurrection, about spiritual gifts, about the collection. They want to know, what do we do with these things, Paul? They want to know about their marriages. They want to know about sex. You know, now that they're Christians. And it looks like that Chloe's people report, you know, there are some in our church that have these hashtags uh, by which they uh, make decisions. Like, uh, you know, hashtag love wins or something like that. Well, here's their hashtag. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, through the years, there are a lot of people who have interpreted this to be Paul's view of sex and Paul's view of marriage. 
And so they've concluded that Paul was anti-sex, that sex should be practiced only for procreation, and otherwise it's, it's dirty and it's disallowed. I can almost 100% assure you this is not Paul's hashtag. This is not his slogan. He is quoting something that they are saying, and he does this a number of times in, in the book. Chloe's people report what they're saying, and Paul responds to it, and that's what is happening here. There are some people in Corinth who are saying, you know, it's just good if you don't, if you don't have sexual relations with a woman, if you don't even touch a woman, even in marriage, apparently. Now, it could be that some of these people just have questions about what their new lives in Christ are supposed to look like. Remember, these people in Corinth have only been Christians three years or so. They didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up being taught about dating, marriage, and the Lord's uh, intention and all of that. So they've come to Christ very new, and they're still trying to figure out all the implications of that. What does it mean for our marriages? What does it mean for our homes now that, that we're Christians? And it could also be that someone is arguing, since the Corinthians are really concerned about spirituality and maturity and wisdom, it could be that someone is arguing that if you really want to be close to Christ and you really want to be spiritual, then you free your, yourself from the mundane things of family life. Now that is not a strange assumption because Paul deals with that in a couple of other texts in the New Testament. He deals with a church in Colossae. They're saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He tells Timothy that there are going to be people come along who'd say, you need to abstain from marriage and you need to abstain from certain foods. So this is not a new idea. But Paul will have none of it. And so he responds. And he's going to respond in three ways in this chapter. Number one, he's going to respond with some personal opinions. Paul is going to give some personal opinions in this chapter that he admits are not for everyone. And I'll show you those when we get there. He's also going to respond with some inspired instructions. There are some things that the Corinthians ask about that the Lord Jesus did not say anything specifically about this question. But Paul will say, you know, as an inspired apostle, I think I've got the Lord's will on this. And then there will also be some divine commands. There are some things that Paul says, the Lord said this, you better listen to the Lord. And so that's the way he responds, with some personal opinions, with some inspired instructions, and with some divine commands about six questions. Look at the text. The first question, the first situation he addresses is these married believers who are abstaining from sex. I have no idea why this would be a thing. My guess is, and I think the hint in the text is, that some people think that abstinence is a requirement of holiness. So the argument may go something like this. We are, we are spiritual. Sex is physical. And if we want to feed the spirit, we need to starve the flesh. We read that in a in a couple of places in, in the New Testament. Well, here's the thing. Paul agrees it is good for a man to touch a woman. This is one of those personal opinions that he shares in this chapter. Paul is single, he is celibate, and he thinks that's the way you ought to be too. 
But Paul also knows that being celibate is a grace gift that not everybody got. Paul says if you can, if you can handle it, do it. If not, don't do it. Paul says that celibacy is a grace gift, but he also knows that sexual immorality is a temptation that is really hard to overcome. And so look what he says, beginning in verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. It is not the wife who has the rights to her own body, but the husband. In the same way, it is not the husband who has the rights to his own body, but the wife. Do not deprive each other. Except by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then resume the relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen to me, Paul has no problem with sex. What Paul has a big problem with is sexual immorality. That's the problem. And so there are a couple of things I want you to notice about Paul's instruction here, and the first one is this. Paul says that sex is one of the responsibilities of marriage. Human beings with a strong sexual desire, and he provided a way to satisfy that desire within the commitment of marriage. Sex only becomes dirty and defiling and embarrassing when it's taken out of the parameters for which God created it. Then that's why you have to hide in a parking lot in a dark car under the cover of darkness because you're doing something wrong and you know you are. Sex is a responsibility of marriage. But notice what else he says. Sex is a mutual responsibility in marriage. Now this is revolutionary. There may be, God forbid, there may be somebody in here this morning who thinks Paul's kind of a male chauvinist. You know, with all the rules he lays down for men and women and husbands and wives. And you would not be surprised to hear Paul say that the wife's body belongs to her husband and the wife has an obligation to her husband. That is not what Paul says here. Paul says that husbands and wives have mutual obligations to each other. The husband has an obligation to his wife. The husband's body does not belong to him. It belongs to his wife. I want you to notice that almost everything in this passage is presented in parallel construction. In other words, it's presented as mutually applicable to both men and women, husbands and wives. Oh, but you know what the old joke is, right? That uh, sex is the husband's huge desire, but it's the wife's hated duty. Paul says that's not right. Paul says that's a sex lie that you've bought into by watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Paul says that sex is supposed to be mutually enjoyable, mutually satisfying, and mutually beneficial. Husbands owe their wives, wives owe their husbands. Wives have a right to their husbands' bodies, husbands have a right to their wives' bodies. Paul says, even in the case of a sex fast, Paul says there's one situation I can think of in your marriages where you should not have sex, and that's if you're wanting to devote a little time to prayer. 
Like some people fast from food, this would be like a sex fast. Paul said, I will grant you, you might do that, but if you do, it better not last long and you'd better come back together quickly because the temptation to sexual immorality is huge and don't let it trip you up. Another thing I want you to notice about this is that there is no instruction here about procreation. We can't decide uh, as humans if sex is for procreation or if it's for pleasure. Your grandma thought it was for procreation and procreation only. And she said something to her daughter like, you're not going to like it, but he's going to expect it and you're going to have to continue the species. Well, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. Uh, God created sex with procreation in mind. And one of the problems that we have in today's society is we've done everything we can to remove our glasses. We've done everything that we can to remove sex and procreation. We want to have completely irresponsible, inconsequential sex to the point that even if... uh, procreation occurs and we must all of a sudden become responsible, we'll do whatever we can to get out of that responsibility. If you remove procreation from sex, then it doesn't matter what kind of sex you have. Sky's the limit. Men with men, women with women, if it's not about procreation, do whatever makes you feel good. But it is. The Bible teaches that it is for procreation. What was God wanting Malachi to? Godly offspring. So it is about procreation, but it is also about pleasure. And in this text, there's nothing about procreation. What there is about is unity and communion and companionship and pleasure. Pleasure is a legitimate purpose too. And to withhold this aspect of the marriage relationship gives the devil an opportunity to destroy the relationship. The responsibility is so significant and and the temptation to sexual immorality is so strong that the word Paul uses in verse 5 to describe those who withhold sex from their marriage partners, the word Paul uses is defraud. Now I know you're looking at verse 5 right now and you're saying, that's not what my translation says. I'm telling you that's what the Greek word means. I'm telling you, that's the exact same word Paul uses in chapter 6 when he talks about these Christians who are taking each other to court and defrauding each other. This is not just about deprivation. It's about defrauding. You made a promise when you got married. So to those who think that abstinence is a path to holiness or higher spirituality, Paul says it could just be the exact opposite. If you withhold the sexual part of the contract from your wife or husband, that very well could be a path to destruction. Paul says something similar to the congregation's widows in the second situation. Look at verse 7. To the widowers and the widows. Now stop right there. Because if you're reading along in your translation, it says to the unmarried and the widows. I'm telling you that's a bad translation. I told you that everything in this chapter is is presented in, in mutual terms in parallel terms. He speaks to the widows and the widowers here. To the widowers and the widows, I say, it's best for them to remain as I am. Now, we know Paul was single. We don't know why. 
Is it because he was divorced? Is it because he never married? Is it because his wife was dead? The only hint that we get is this passage right here. And I might be reading too much into it, but he says to the widowers and the widows, remain as I am, which might be a hint that his wife has died. But that's the only hint we get. To the widowers and the widows, I say that it is best for them to remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, let them get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. So once again, Paul prefers celibacy, but he recognizes not everybody got the gift of celibacy. And he says that God has provided an outlet for sexual desire, and that's in marriage. Now look at the third situation, verse 10. Paul speaks now to married believers. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, the Lord said something specifically about this situation during his earthly ministry. Here's what the Lord said. A wife should not divorce her husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband should not divorce his wife. It's possible that some in Corinth were questioning the ongoing importance of being married now that they're married to the Lord. Paul, if we're married to the Lord, should we seek to be unmarried from our spouses? And for this question, Paul has a word from the Lord, and here's that word. Do not get divorced. That's the word. Jesus gave this command on a number of occasions that are recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. One of those times is when Jesus had, had wandered over into the uh, jurisdiction of Herod uh, Antipas. And Antipas had just recently beheaded John the Baptist because of his views on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And Jesus uh, wanders into Herod's jurisdiction and the Pharisees come to him and go, What do you think about that? Well, they're about to get him killed is what they're about to do. It's a trap. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. Rather than excuse their hard hearts or approve of their hypocritical loopholes, Jesus says, haven't you read what God intended when he created marriage in the first place? Have you not read from the beginning that the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. May I argue to you this morning that in our present reality where people are questioning male and female and marriage, there are people who would say to you, well, you know, the Lord Jesus never said, yes, he did. Yes, he did. When he was asked about marriage, his response was to go back to the beginning to what God said about marriage. And what God said about marriage was heterosexual, lifelong monogamy. That's the final word. Now this may very well be the most difficult teaching of the chapter. I mean, it was difficult for the original audience 
who heard it. In Matthew 19, when Jesus said that, the disciples responded, well, if that's the way it is between a man and his wife, maybe it'd be better not to get married. And Jesus said, right. You got it. You understand. It is a big deal. It's not difficult because it's difficult to understand. It is not difficult to understand. Don't get divorced. If you do, remain single or be reconciled. That's not the difficult part. What's difficult is that we have a lot of questions about the implications of the teaching. This is where having an apostle on speed dial would be incredibly helpful. What about adultery? Jesus makes an exception for adultery. Paul doesn't mention it here, though. And then what about all those other things like abuse or addiction or abandonment? What about those things? What if we've been defrauded or deprived? What about all the other sins that destroy our relationships and lead to divorce? What about those, Paul? Well, Paul didn't address any of that here. And that's the difficulty. Those questions are simply not on Paul's radar. And one of the mistakes we make when we read a biblical text is we try to read our questions into his answers. He's not answering our questions. He's answering theirs. Now, it may very well be that he gives us principles that we can use to apply to our situations... And I want you to notice Paul does seem to recognize here that there are legitimate exceptions to the rule. Because look at the fourth situation down in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't talk about this particular situation, but here's one of those inspired instructions. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is happy to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is happy to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of the wife and the unbelieving wife because of her husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. But if an unbeliever wants a divorce, let it take place. In these circumstances, the brother or sister is not bound God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will bring your husband to salvation? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will bring your wife to salvation? So the question here is, what do we do if we have a believer who is married to an unbeliever? Surely we should get divorced then, Paul, right? Surely. I can imagine that this would be a particularly difficult situation in first century Corinth especially if you're a woman. I want you to imagine, uh, as a woman in the first century world, your husband ruled every aspect of your life and every aspect of your children's lives. Uh, you worshipped the gods he worshipped. Well, Paul comes to town with the gospel about salvation in Jesus Christ, and you believe and are baptized. What happens if you come home and the husband does not permit that? What happens if you come home and he says, look, I'm not crazy about this crazy cult that you've, uh, that you've attached yourself to, so here's the deal. You can either renounce Christ and these crazy people or you can renounce me. Which one are you going to do? 
I imagine the question goes something like that. And Paul says, look, uh, if the unbeliever will live with you, live with them. Don't get divorced. And it may very well be that in your righteous and godly and holy example that you can, you can bring your husband and your children to a saving knowledge of the truth. But he says, don't worry that being married to an unbeliever will nullify your own holiness. But, if that unbeliever will not live with you, if that unbeliever says, renounce Christ or renounce me, Paul says, in that case you are not bound. I interpret that to mean she's free and free to remarry. Now there's a lot more that we could talk about in relationship to this, but I want you to think about just a couple of things right here. First of all, Paul is writing this to a first-generation Gentile mission church in which many of the people in this church have been married, divorced, and remarried before they ever come to Jesus. In other words, these are pagans converted out of paganism who do not know what the Lord expects about marriage and sex. And so it causes me to wonder what would Paul's advice be if he was writing to a majority Christian church? Um, what would Paul's advice be if he was writing to people like you in the sound of my voice who grew up in the church, who know what God expects about marriage? What would he say to you? I wonder how Paul would feel about believers who know better marrying unbelievers. This text is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This text offers no solace to people who got themselves into marriages they shouldn't have been in and then had difficulties because they were yoked up with somebody who didn't know the Lord. This text is not for them. And I have to tell this to my young people at Harding all the time. I say, look, you're all at this place in your life where you're thinking seriously about dating and marrying, and why would you ever get yourself into a dating or marriage relationship with somebody who doesn't know the Lord? Why would you ever purposefully Hook yourself to somebody who doesn't share your morals, your values, or your trajectory. Well, you can discuss that over lunch. There are two more situations addressed in the chapter. In verse 25, he addresses engaged believers, and in verse 39, he addresses widows again. But when he writes to widows for the second time, those who are free to remarry, he says with this caveat, only in the Lord. So the one time he, without a doubt, addresses people who can be married, he says, you only marry in the Lord. But now look at his advice to engaged couples. Verse 25. With regard to the question about people who have never married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my opinion... 
as one shown mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Because of the impending crisis, I think it best for you to remain as you are. The one bound to a wife should not seek divorce. The one released from a wife should not seek marriage. But if you marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face difficult circumstances. And I'm trying to spare you such problems. And I say this, brothers and sisters, the time is short. So then those who have wives should be as those who have none. Those with tears like those not weeping. Those who rejoice like those not rejoicing. Those who buy like those without possessions. Those who use the world as though they were not using it to the full. For the present shape of this world is passing away. And I want you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the things of this world, how to please his wife, and he's divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, to be holy both in body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place a limitation on you but so that without distraction you might give yourself to notable and constant service to the Lord. Here we get some insight as to why Paul commends singleness and celibacy. Now he puts his commendation in the category of his opinion. He says you can get married, you don't get married, it's not a sin, it's between you and your fiancé and the Lord. But he says I think you'd be better off if you didn't and he gives two reasons why. One reason he gives has to do with the coming difficulties and the present crisis. I have no idea what Paul has in mind here. My suspicion is it has to do with that very common scriptural thread that says the closer we get to the end of all things, the worse it's going to get. The closer we get to the end of all things, the more chaotic and dangerous and deadly it's going to be for God's people. And when that happens, you want to be free from concern. When that happens, you don't want to have to worry about what might happen to your wife or to your children. And listen, I know some of you are feeling this way right now. You're wondering, are we headed for World War III? Uh, is there going to be economic collapse? Are there going to be food shortages? What will happen to my wife and children now? I'm a 46-year-old with a 3-year-old. Now, my 22-year-old, he's up and gone. He's got a wife. He's making a life. He can fend for himself. But I always feel like I've got to hang around a lot longer because I've got a 3-year-old. I've got to see through this mess. What's going to happen to him? If it's this bad now, that's the kind of thing I think Paul's got on his mind. He also mentions the short time. That is undoubtedly a phrase that references Paul's belief that the Lord is going to return imminently. Paul thinks the Lord may even return in his lifetime. You might say, well, was he wrong about that? Was the inspired apostle wrong about that? My answer would be Jesus says he himself doesn't know. Okay, so if Jesus doesn't know, I think we can give Paul a break here. But I think what Paul understands is it could be any moment, at any day, and you have to live with great urgency and expectation, knowing that the Lord's return is imminent. And so that's what he commends here.
urgency and expectation. Here's the deal. Listen to me very carefully. Single people are in a unique kingdom position. Single people are in a unique kingdom position. Think about it like this. I tell my Harding students all the time, you're about to graduate from school. Okay, you're not engaged, you're not married, you're trying to figure out the rest of your life, maybe you'll go to grad school, who knows what you'll do. But I said, you know what, you have an opportunity before you that not everybody has. At Harding, we talk a lot about a group uh, called Avanti Italia, where you take two years postgraduate and you go to Italy and you, you work as a, as a missionary there. We have people from China. China now comes to Harding all the time and recruits people to move to China and teach English and teach English using the Bible. We send people from Highway to the Mission Paracristo, Nicaragua all the time, and here's the reality. I can't go. I'm a 46-year-old diabetic with six children and a wife. I'm pretty uh, planted where I am. It would be incredibly irresponsible for me to go. But you can go. You got the rest of your life ahead of you. You got the world at your fingertips. Now, like at no other time in your life, could you go and serve the Lord and give yourself to what Paul calls notable and constant service to the Lord? Well, this is a mess. This is a mess. These are messy issues. I know they are, but Paul gives us some advice in this, in this chapter to help us make the most of the mess. I beg you to take some time this week to go back over this chapter. Take a, look, a closer look at some of these big ideas and Spencer will be back next week to answer all of your questions. <laughs> but don't miss the big ideas. The big ideas, the purpose and the permanence of marriage. Don't miss the big ideas. The preference and the possibilities for singleness. Don't miss the big ideas, the grace gifts of both marriage and singleness. Don't miss the big ideas, the seriousness of sexual immorality and divorce. And whatever you do, don't forget the passage with which we began the study. Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so must he live. I give this sort of direction in all the churches. Was anyone called after he had been circumcised? He should not try to undo his circumcision. Was anyone called who is uncircumcised? You should not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Marriage is nothing and singleness is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is everything. Let each one remain in the situation in life in which he was called. I told you at the beginning of this that the discussion here about marriage, divorce, and remarriage is part of a larger conversation about what makes one pleasing to the Lord. Does being single make, make you more spiritual? Of course not. It comes with some unique opportunities, but it doesn't make you more spiritual than me. 
Does abstaining from sex with your wife or husband mean that you're somehow purer in the eyes of the Lord? Of course not. The fact of the matter is that that posture may put you in particular danger. It doesn't make you more spiritual. Does being married to an unbeliever or being divorced or being remarried, does that mean that you can't experience a life-giving relationship with the Lord? Of course not. There may be some difficult consequences that result from difficult decisions. But you're loved by the Lord. You're cared for by the Lord. And you can serve the Lord regardless of your marital status. And that's what this chapter is all about. You can serve the Lord no matter what situation in life you find yourself. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. Is your ultimate concern as a single person how you can serve the Lord with your singleness? Is your ultimate concern as a married couple how you can serve the Lord and His kingdom through your marriage? Is your ultimate concern as a widow or a divorcee is your ultimate concern to serve the Lord in that present state? Our situations in this world, Paul says, are temporary and they are passing away and only the things of eternal significance matter. You want to know what matters? You want to be pleasing to the Lord? You want to be spiritual? You want to be mature? You want to be wise? Keep His commandments. You want to be pleasing to the Lord? Flee fornication. You want to be pleasing to the Lord? Submit to and serve your spouses and your children. And don't get divorced. But if you do, repent. Pursue reconciliation. Extend and receive forgiveness. And whatever happens, be devoted to the Lord and seek to serve Him and to please Him above everything else. There are some of you in this audience this morning who've made a complete mess of your marriages because instead of seeking to serve the Lord and please Him, you've sought to seek You've, you've, you've sought yourself to please yourself, to serve yourself, and it's made a mess for your spouse and for your children. There's some of you in here this morning, you made a complete mess of your sexuality. You have not experienced it in terms of the holy, life-giving experience that God intends, and it's messy. Repent of your sins. I don't know that you can... Uh, I don't know that you can uh, reclaim your technical virginity. But you can have a redeemed virginity. I don't know if after all the messes that have been made, if your marriage can be saved. But I know this, without you giving yourself to the Lord, there ain't no chance of it. So if you're in a mess, if you've made a mess, if you're thinking about making a mess... Why don't you come while we stand and sing and let's help you work through it.